Bose is the presenting partner of Beyond the Grid. That's because Bose QuietComfort 35.2 goes beyond what you would expect from a pair of headphones. Just flip the switch to experience the industry-leading active noise reduction feature and all distractions of the world around you fade away, allowing you to focus on what matters to you. Hi, I'm Christian Horner, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone, it's Tom Clarkson here, ready once more to take you beyond the grid. We've got a bit of a special show today with none other than Red Bull boss Christian Horner. Now, in any meeting with Christian, there is never a shortage of things to talk about. But it just so happened that the day that we sat down to talk, a day that we'd penciled in our diaries for some time, was the very day that Daniel Ricciardo announced he'd be leaving Red Bull for Renault in 2019. So as you can imagine, there was a lot going on when I arrived at his house in rural Oxfordshire. Key members of the team needed to be informed of the change, a press release needed to be written, and he was already beginning to ponder his next move. And you won't believe the number of calls he took from driver managers just while I was there. It would be telling to reveal who they were, but let's just say that the second Red Bull seat in 2019 is much in demand. But Horner, he's an engaging character with some great stories, as you're about to find out. And keep an ear out too for an interruption from Christian's wife, Spice Girl Jerry, later in the show. Christian, welcome to Beyond the Grid and thank you for having me. We're at home somewhere deep in the Oxfordshire countryside, very beautiful. So if we, there may be the odd dog barking in the background. Yeah. What have you got here just on the animal front? Uh, there's, there's all kinds. There's, uh, there's a couple of little West Highland Terriers. There's one called Bernie. He's the bossy one. Wandering around. Small? Small, quite aggressive. Flavio, he's the fat one, chilling out, thinks he's cool. Bernie and Flavio. Really. So there's Bernie and Flavio and then there's a couple of other Bigger ones, Hugo and Margot cruising around. Brilliant. Well, it's it's a little haven, and we're in the summer break, of course. We're all trying to relax, although uh, I think quite hard for you to do that right now, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Christian, can we just start? Let's start by talking about Red Bull Racing. You know, you, yeah. you've been here at the team since the beginning, 14 years. What has been your proudest achievement? I think it's it's... Getting a group of people to work collectively together, um, and I think as 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 a team, and I think you know what we achieved between two thousand really nine, you know, was a big year for us, and two thousand and thirteen, winning four world championships, back to back world championships, double championships, constructors and drivers was, you know, a huge huge realization, and even really since then, you know, the difficulties we've had. In the, with the regulation change to the engines, you know, that we've managed to win, you know, races almost every single year. But if there's one moment, Christian, that stands out, is it that first win in 2009? I think there's a couple of, couple of moments that stand out. One is the first victory in 2009 in China, pouring in the rain. Sebastian qualified on pole. And that wasn't stress-free because he had a leaking drive shaft boot where all the oil was coming out. Could only do one lap at a time. And then we had a wet race on, on race day. And so 
to win that championship, to finish first and second, was, you know, the realisation of, of everything coming together. It was a very, very special moment for the team, you know, for Sebastian, for, you know, everybody in the team, for Dietrich Mateschitz and, you know, and of course myself. How had the team evolved from 2-5 to that moment? Well, 2005, you know, Red Bull acquired Jaguar at the end of 2004. And so the 2005 car was essentially a, a repainted Jaguar. And during the 2005 season, it was a question of, right, identifying where the strengths and weaknesses were in the team and building, setting out about building the foundations. And a key part of that was getting the right technical leadership. And for me, you know, I obviously followed motorsport for many, many years, driven in the, in the, in the sports as well. And, you know, Adrian Newey was... Um, do you want me to go and kill that, dog? <laughs> that, was, that was Bernie, right? I don't know who that is. I think that's Margot. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you, you know, obviously having got Adrian to join the team, you know, where he started at the beginning of 2006 very quickly started working on the 2007 car. It was then a question of bolstering the team and building a, an organisation that could accommodate the way that Adrian worked, which was totally different to anything that happened in the, in the company previously. And, you know, when you get a designer of Adrian's capability and track record, uh, you know, you, you, you would 100% back him. And, and so we created a structure bringing in, you know, key personnel, whether it's likes of, you know, Rob Marshall at the time, Peter Bedromo, you know, other key members of the team, Jonathan Wheatley as a team manager from Renault. You know, it was a, there was a, a heavy recruitment process about building the right, the right structure. And it was really only when the regulation change came between 2008, 2009, where there was a reset that we created the right structure, that it gave the technical team the opportunity with a clean sheet of paper to come up with you know, their best interpretation. And, and we saw from very early in 2009 testing that we were looking really competitive until the brawn turned up right at the end because obviously question marks over its future and so on. How frustrated were you as the boss that Adrian hadn't spotted the double diffuser? Well, I think the, the, the double diffuser was, was a political thing because if you looked at the, the regulations to the letter, a double diffuser would never have been allowed. But when you had a scenario where it was all about interpretation and there were the teams that had it that were uh, not in conflict with the FIA at the time and that there were the teams that didn't, that included Ferrari and McLaren that were embroiled in a, in a battle and Renault with Max and the FIA. And so it, my feeling was it became as much a political thing as a, as a technical thing. Uh, and so... Of course, it was it was frustrating the way that the ruling went. But as soon as it was clear that a double diffuser was acceptable, I think we introduced our first variant by Monaco that just started getting bigger and more integrated, you know, thereafter. And away you went. So Adrian Newey, was, is he the single biggest signing you have made in your career so far? And I include drivers in that. I think he's the most significant one. Yes, absolutely, because he's... You know, his credentials speak for themselves. And I think that, you know, I could tell that Adrian was frustrated in the environment that he was, you know, in at the time at McLaren. And I think the opportunity at Red Bull just provided a new lease of life for him, freedom, 
and without the constraints or the corporate restrictions that would have been been placed on him that you know McLaren had become. How did you know that? Did you know Adrian prior to two six? I didn't know him before I came to Formula One. He grew up in an area very close to to where I'd grown up. Um, but you know, he's had you come across each other in the past? He's fifteen years older than me, so. Um, no, I'd just been a fan of his cars. And, you know, David Coulthard, who was our driver at the time, I, I remember saying to David quite early on around the first European race in Imola, I think Adrian's interested in what we're doing because I found him outside the, the front of the, uh, uh, the energy station, which turned up for the first time next to McLaren. And there's Adrian standing out in the front of it looking at it. And so I just invited him to come and have a look around. And, and did he come in? And he came in. In his McLaren gear? In his McLaren gear. Had a, had a drink, you know, and just got chatting. And we started to build a relationship. And then DC was, was instrumental in helping to progress that because he said, well, you know, Adrian's wife of the time, you know, was an instrumental person within his decision-making. And so, you know, David organised you know, a dinner at the Bluebird in Chelsea. And it was just an opportunity to get to know each other better. And he was just inquisitive about what we were doing, what the aspirations of Red Bull were. And you could just feel it building and building. And then we How went How quickly did he give you a hint? Yeah, OK, I might do this. Uh, it was, I, I could just feel it was going in that direction because I think it was getting... From... Well, that, was, that was around September. I think we went to Austria to meet Dietrich and see what the world of Red Bull was all about. I think that was either end of September, early October. Is Dietrich quite impressive in that situation in terms of selling Red Bull to someone like Adrian? Well, it was, it was a very funny meeting because it wasn't much of a meeting. We turned up in Austria and um, Adrian's then wife was very keen to conceal his identification, even though David Coulthard was on the plane with us. And so... We we turned up and she was trying to put a cap and dark glasses on him, and we got out of the aeroplane at at the Red Bull hangar, and there's a bunch of Japanese tourists there that see David Coulthard, and all they're doing is taking pictures, which was absolutely Marigold's worst nightmare. And thereafter, um, you know, straight from that we got into a helicopter, went up to see to have lunch with Dietrich, who arrived about an hour late on his. Harley Davidson sat down with everybody to have some apple strudel and you know was enthusiastic about great that you're here blah 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 um would love you to be with us is he the kind of guy though that is almost wanting to do a deal over lunch there was there was there was no, no even not even talk of it um and you know it was just a few pleasantries and then off he went again on his motorbike you know have a great time see you later what then what do we do we, we stuck Adrian up in an alpha jet one of the Red Bull fleet of planes that they have that I think he went inverted over Innsbruck at about 500 feet or something ridiculous, came back looking fairly white and then, then went out for dinner that evening. It was at that point that, you know, I, I had a figure in my mind where I thought he'd be at and that I'd sort of warmed Helmut and, and Dietrich up to, I think, beforehand. And then over dinner, it turned out that figure was at least... 50% out from where from where reality was going to be. Uh, but over the dinner, we managed to agree a, agree a deal, in principle, subject to Dietrich's approval. And I remember the call going in to say, the good news is, you know, Adrian's prepared to come, uh, which was all fantastic, blah, blah, blah. So the bad news is, is that it's going to cost this much. 
He's like, send him home immediately. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that reaction lasted about five minutes. And then it was like, no, this is a wonderful opportunity for our team to have, you know, Adrian Newey, you know, that had so much success behind him, you know, join Red Bull. And I think he was, he liked what he saw. He got a great feeling from, from the team, from Dietrich's ambition and, and, and commitment. And it was just a different energy to what he'd been, you know, been used to in the sort of controlling, you know, Can't atmosphere. Before, and have you read his book, Adrian's book? I've, I, do you know what? I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet. So, um, well, let me tell you, it's really good. And I think <laughs> just, but, and, and I think the rebel environment is so different to even William. Yes. Like anything he'd ever experienced before. I think so. And I think that's what brings the best out. You know, Adrian is a creative person. He's like an artist and you don't, you know, with creative people, you can't put them in a cage. Um, you've got to give them the freedom to express themselves, to to be creative. And I think that's been one of the things that's really worked tremendously well with with Adrian. We haven't stopped him doing his racing or whatever he whatever he wants to do. And I think he hasn't felt you know he's worked for Red Bull for longer for, than any other company his entire entire career. Do you have um, problems keeping him motivated? Not at all. I think, you know, Adrian is a very competitive guy. He's sort of fell out of love a bit with Formula One over the last few years, I think, mainly after the engine regulation change. But, of course, the Valkyrie project with Aston Martin has really stimulated him. Um, and so all his creative juices get going. And, and that car will be, you know, insane. But he still he still loves Formula One. He's still very much involved in what we're doing. And you, you, you see his influence all over the car. So if that's your most important signing, Adrian, you great story. What about you? What made Dietrich Mateschitz choose you? Ridiculously young at the time, back in the autumn yeah. of 2004, at a time when all the old stages were still around. Jean Taub was still there, Ron Dennis was still there, Flavio was still there. Yeah. You know, you were the, the kid among the kid, them. Yeah. What, what was the attraction? Talk us through the negotiations with Dietrich for yourself. Well, I think what happened really there was I'd competed against Helmut's team. In fact, winding the clock back even further to 1996, I was still driving at the time and I decided that I had an amount of sponsorship that, you know, I was going to set up a team because that would provide me the best opportunity with the money that I had rather than going to a team and, you know, wasting a lot of money and just having a set of result sheets and some overalls at the end of the year. But these this way, with the money I had, I'd still have a car and some assets around around me. So originally Arden was set up just as a mechanism for me to go to go racing. That was my ambition with it, not to be a team principal or anything like that. And you know, I needed a trailer to transport the car around in. And then, you know, I was informed that this chap in Austria, Dr. Helmut Marco, he was going to taking his team to America and he had a he had a trailer for sale. So I flew to Graz. I think I was about twenty four at the time. I met Helmut. Were you aware of Helmut? No idea. No idea, who he, uh, no idea who he was. I knew that he was an ex-driver. And that was about it. And uh, we had a pleasant lunch, agreed a deal on this trailer. And that, and that was it. Shook hands on it. And he said, right, you need to send me the money tomorrow. And I'll deliver the trailer in a one week's time to, um, to Dover. So uh, anyway, I, I came back and I begged, borrowed and you know, scrounged the money, sent it to Helmut. And I remember having a discussion with my father saying that, oh, good news, I managed to buy a trailer. He said, well, where is it? I said, well, it's in Austria. He said, well, when are you paying for it? I said, well, I already have. 
who to? I said, well, this Austrian chap, that, that he seemed all right. He had a good handshake and looked reputable. I said, are you mad? And so anyway, I then spent the next week f- sweating that this trailer was going to arrive, which of course it duly did. Um, when did you say to Dover? To, to Dover, yeah. And then, uh, and then I... As far as he was going that to was, take That was all it was going. It was coming to Dover and then it had to be collected from there. And it was a good trailer. I actually made a profit on it when I sold it about five years later. And that was my first meeting with, with Helmut, who then was running his own team in Formula 3000 at the time. And he had Juan Pablo Montoya and Craig Lowndes as his drivers. You know, and it, it was a competitive team. It was a no-frills team, but it was a it was a competitive team at the time. And then he then took on the Red Bull Junior program where he had two young drivers, Enrico Bernoldi and uh, Ricardo Mauricio, who's a strange little driver that had a twitch um, with a uh, small guy. little guy. Um, so you'd see him going down the hit pit lane and his head would be bobbling around because he's got a sort of like a nervous twitch. And that, you know, Helmut, he had some success with it, but it, you could see his heart was sort of going out of it and he was becoming more and more involved with Red Bull. And then he sold his team I just focused on the Red Bull Junior program. And I, in the meantime, I'd won the championship with Thomas Enger in 2002. I'd won the championship again in Formula 3000, which is now called Formula 2, with Bjorn Wertheim in 2003. And for 2004, there was a, a, an Italian driver that was a Red Bull Junior called Vitz Antonio Liuzzi. And I was desperate to have him in our team because he was the, the standout driver. And by this time, Helmut was looking after the program. And, and so I went and negotiated with Helmut. And typical Helmut, he wanted to pay cheap. So he offered me half a budget for Liuzzi. And I said, OK, I'll do it for that, but you've got to pay a win bonus. I can't remember. How confident was. were you of winning at this I point? thought we might win three yeah. or four races. Right. So I said, if we win, you know, so I said, if we win a race, I want a win bonus of, I think it was 20,000 euros a race. And Liuzzi went on to win every single race bar one. <laughs> <laughs> which his teammate Robert Dornbos won um, and dom- totally dominated the championship. So, so in the end, you know, it, it, I didn't lose any money on it, put it that way. But Helmut was happy because his driver won and, you know, it, su- it suited me. And at the time, I'd then won the Formula 3000 championship for three years in a row and the team championship. And I was thinking, right, OK, I want to move into Formula 1. And at the time, I was looking for opportunities for the Arden team to go into Formula 1. And Bernie was... Who had, so we're talking 2-4 at the minute. 2004. So Bernie Eccleston, who I'd been representing the Formula 3000 teams for, the Helmut actually re- had nominated me to represent the teams with Bernie to negotiate prize funds and bits and pieces. Bernie basically said, you need to be doing Formula 1. And I want to find a solution for Eddie Jordan's team. Um, what, so EJ wanted out. So Eddie wanted out. Um, and, uh, you know, this was an opportunity I was looking at potentially. So we did all the due diligence on, on Jordan and the deal just typical Eddie became more and more complicated. I'd got some backing in the pipeline from Hutchinson Wampoa, but the more you look, the more complex it came. How and close did you get to? I think Eddie? I offered him one pound for it in the end to take on the liability that he had, that he went absolutely ballistic about. I remember having him ranting on the phone at me because... I, you know, the more you looked, the more stones you you lifted, the more issues you found. So it was never really a goer. It wasn't, you know, if he was prepared to do a deal at that level, then then, you know, to basically get rid of the liability. 
And during that process, Helmut introduced me to, to Dietrich because Red Bull at the time were looking at buying a team in Formula One. They'd been a sponsor of Christian Klein at Jaguar. They'd been involved as a shareholder at Sauber, but you know they were keen to get involved in Formula One. So initially I met Dietrich um, at the end of the summer in 2004, and he was half interested in the Jordan you know, scenario. So, so Helmut was the introduction. So Helmut, yeah, he was the inter, in, 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 intermediary. And anyway, but he then said, he made it quite clear, no, look, we, we want to go the Jaguar route. We feel that's a better proposition for us. Keep us informed with how the Jordan thing goes. The Jordan thing rapidly, by the time of October, end of October, was pretty much dead. And I'd still been talking to Helmut on and off about bits and pieces. Uh, and he was becoming ever more frustrated with the existing management, was the old Jaguar management at, at uh, what was now Red Bull that they acquired in November 2000, 2004. And so by December, I said, look, the Jordan thing is dead. And he said, well, why don't you come and have a chat with us, with Dietrich, about what we're doing? And so literally just before Christmas 2004, I flew to Salzburg, had a meeting with Dietrich and, and Helmut, uh, and they offered me a two-year deal to, to run the team in, in, uh, in Formula One. And you know, I was just turned 31 years of age. So, you know, and Jaguar had scored nine points the previous year. And so Dietrich, gave me the opportunity and again you made me a very low offer in terms of remuneration but said I'll pay you a bonus for each point that you score and uh, based on the fact that as I say Jaguar had only scored nine points the previous year we scored 12 points at the first Grand Prix in Australia oh that's what you're saying um, <laughs> and went on to score I think 34 points that that first year but it was it was really through Helmut introducing me to Dietrich and then Dietrich having the the balls to go with a 31-year-old um, and uh, giving the keys to his new asset, this this Formula One team. And, you know, as I say, it was initially a, it was a two-year contract. And I started at, at uh, Red Bull on January the 4th, I think it was, 2005. What an amazing story. Why, looking back, has he ever told you why he took the risk on you because there must have been lots of other more experienced guys out there or, or... well Dietrich's always you, you, you can see through everything that, that, that Red Bull have done they've had a great policy of backing youth and investing in youth whether it's drivers whether it's within the company and you know he gave me that chance and you know he um, obviously had seen what I'd done in Formula 3000 um, listen obviously Helmut played a key role in that as well and you know, he was bold enough to to, to give me a chance, and because I was unheard of in Formula One, you know, people knew who I was and what I'd done from you know, the Formula Three Thousand activities. But in Formula One, nobody had. You know, I, I was just a thirty-one-year-old hopeful. How has your relationship with Dietrich evolved over the last fourteen years? Well, you know, it's is it professional or would it, is there a friendship there now? I think you know, I've worked with him for fifteen years now, and. You know, he's still got exactly the same energy that he had when I first started. His enthusiasm for Formula One, for the team, his commitment, passion, you know, drive, 
it runs all the way through Red Bull. And, you know, he's an infectious guy to, to be around. Yeah, I think that there's obviously, you build trust in any relationship over a period of time. You're a paid employee. You clearly had ambitions to be a, have your own team mm -hmm. in a Formula One. Is that a source of frustration for you? Does it give limitations that frustrate you somehow? Not at all, because I think to be an independent team relying on commercial income in Formula One today is impossible. You look at great teams like Williams and McLaren that are desperately struggling. And I think, you know, Red Bull, the Formula One team is a marketing tool. It's the prime marketing tool within the Red Bull organization. And so, you know, where I've been fortunate is to to be able to, to focus on building and operating a team. Of course, there's financial pressure, pressure to hit budgets, pressure to hit targets, but but not the austerity that faces independent teams. The model of Formula One today just doesn't work. Um, and that's something that obviously Liberty really need to get their arms around um, for the next Concord Agreement. So is Formula One to you a sport or a business? It's both. It's a sport 21 weekends of the year. And it's a business Monday to Friday in between each of that. You know, on every every week, you know, we employ close to 900 people, 22 different departments, and there's all the pressures of running a business that's in a high-performing, high-tech, you know, industry. And then every other weekend from March to November, we're judged very publicly in front of, you know, the world's media and 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 following, um, you know, fans on TV and however people watch races these days. Um, you know, on our sporting performance. But do you think that criticism has affected you elsewhere in terms of in recent years you've tried to do deals with other manufacturers who have I think it's I think it's used as an excuse. If I look at how critical McLaren were of Honda who were being paid to use their engine, get a get a free engine, paid for their drivers, whatever else, it was nowhere near in comparison. We're we're paying for a product. And I think the problem is it becomes very easy for a Mercedes or a uh, Ferrari to use it as an excuse, but they they don't want to supply Red Bull an engine because of the competitiveness and potentness of our team. And you can understand, I'd probably be the same in their position. Why on earth would you want to give one of your main competitors one of your biggest assets? You wouldn't want to do it. And so coming up with any excuse to avoid it is is what these guys are very good at. Let's talk about you, the racing driver. Mm -hmm. um, That'd be quick. No, no. When, when did it start? I mean, when did you cart from a very young age? Was it? I started karting when I was twelve. I think I had that that passion um, of just wanting to. Whether it was building your own go kart to race down the back hill, yeah, you know, it was. It was always a fascination by speed or how many bricks you could jump over on your BMX, you know, bike on the ramp that you'd make that ended up in A and E a couple of times, yeah. and and it was competing. You know, wanting to compete. So. Anyway, my mother helped me get this go-kart that, that then turned out to be, it was a, a knackered old thing that was, an, it was an, from the 1970s, an old racing car, and it was, of course, far too low to go around the garden. So there was a go-kart track, or kart track, just outside Banbury in Shennington that my father remembered from his youth. And so we, we went up there one Saturday, and then suddenly, boom, this world of karting opened to me that you could race these things and 
and, and and you know anyway so that's how 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 we started and i started racing and at the time there were drivers like you know david coulthard he was the top junior and and there was some Do great you remember drivers. racing dc i never actually raced against dc because he was two years older than me but i remember being at races that he was at did he talk to you did he talk to me um i don't think he probably did i probably wouldn't have understood him coming from scotland anyway but um yeah there were other uh, there were some great british drivers at the time you know guy smith that went on to have a good career uh ralph Furman that went to race on in formula one richard westbrook i think he might be even still racing so yeah there were some you know some some uh, great drivers and jensen button was a few years younger daniel weldon now you say you said earlier that you you weren't much copper driving, but you you were successful in mm-hmm. Formula Renault. Yeah, I won a so sc- there was reason to be optimistic. Yeah, I won a scholarship from karting, so I won, won a Renault scholarship to go from driving karts into Formula Renault. Um, so I moved into Formula Renault for John Booth's team in Manor Motorsport, and John was a great guy to drive for. It was a deal that was done on a handshake, and he was a competitive guy. He wanted to win. He ran a really neat little team. And Pedro de la Rosa was the the main competitor that year, driving in a Marlboro-sponsored minister car. And I was the rookie, and, and you know I was getting better and better through the year. I managed to win a race at Pembrey International Circuit in Wales, beating Pedro. Um, got a message you know, from Pedro day. right now. Uh, but he got lucky that year, you know. <laughs> yeah, if uh, if a bit more experience, I think, you know, it would have been a different story. Who knows? I might have gone on to drive for Jordan and Arrows and McLaren. But, uh, it, you know, it was it was a fun year. And then suddenly, you know, you start to get a bit recognised, offers start coming in. I was then asked to go and drive for Lotus in their Formula 3 team. Um, you know, I drove in, in Class B in 93 and uh, yeah, yeah, I won five races that year, and then Formula Three the next year in a stellar year against Magnussen, but Jan Magnussen, Kevin's dad, Dario Franchetti. There were some some really you know strong drivers, and it was a great experience. You know, I I loved it, but I just wasn't quite at their level. I then raced, I then created this uh, this team. Did you, did you know that at the time? Did you realise? I started to, yeah. You know, the higher you went, That's the harder it got. That's when the penny started to drop in Formula yeah. 3. In Formula 3, yes. And and I was then determined to do Formula 3000. And ironically, um, I had an amount of sponsorship, and I had this one sponsor called Elizabeth the Chef, and they made cream cakes in Asda and Safeways and Safeways, celebration cakes. And the owner, I remember, sat down with me, and he said, look, Christian, we can afford to pay a little bit more money if this cake, this celebration cake, you know, works all right. And he said, we've, we've done a deal with a band, a girl group called the Spice Girls. And uh, if this cake sells, we'll be able to pay you a bit more money. So, so anyway, of course, it was mid-90s or 96, 97 that this was going on, which is at the height of their success or they're just as they were about to explode. These cakes sold out. In minutes, you know, nationwide, they couldn't produce enough cakes. There was that many birthday cakes going out, so, which was fantastic because it meant that, you know, did, uh, you, did you meet? Any of we, the no, I never, no. I never met. I was just grateful for these <laughs> girls that were generating enough cake sales to, to, to help my sponsorship. So indirectly, yeah, as it turns out, that my wife actually indirectly financed part of my career, and so yeah, they were a, a sponsor of mine in 
in '97 and and '98. Um, it started off in the in the Tom's car, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, was there one particular moment where you had a proper reality check? Because I remember asking Toto Wolff this question, and he said. Yes, there was a moment for him at the Salzburg ring. It was raining and Alex Wurtz came past him sideways and doing stuff yeah. that he knew he couldn't do. And that was yeah. his moment of... Sounds like Toto's been listening to my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, have, so was so, there a moment? Yeah, I remember very vividly. Um, it was... Uh, when was it? It was. I think it was the beginning of the 1997 season. And uh, it, we were testing at Estoril. And when you came out of the pit lane in Estoril, there was a very fast right-hand corner. Um, and I remember Juan Pablo Montoya coming past me into this right-hand corner and just seeing the energy in this car that was pretty much completely sideways, completely flat out, totally committed. The rear wheel rim trying to pop through the sidewall of the tyre. And there's a, a wall and barrier about five metres away on the left-hand side of the circuit. And I just thought, I can't do that. You know, even if my heart says I want to, my head is saying, don't be an idiot. I knew, I just recognised at that point, and that was even before the season had started, that I couldn't do it. I could be quick in the slow corners. Uh, but when it came to that commitment, I just didn't have that. But would you, if you'd never got on that car age 12, would you be doing what you're doing now? No, not at all. I'd probably have been doing some other job that I couldn't even imagine. Um, uh, You'd be a good architect, like interior designer. He loves interior design. Wife Jerry saying that Christian would have been a good architect. Yeah, or interior designer. Or interior designer. Interior design. I, I have to say, it's so. a lovely. It is a lovely. Yeah, so. he really has attention to detail. Attention to detail. Well, I suppose you need that running a Formula One team. Yeah, he's as well. all about precision. You get obsessed about precision and so about tidiness, precision. which unfortunately <laughs> my wife doesn't share <laughs> the <you> same. <laughs> The same ideas. Um, so, 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 so the racing driving. Yeah, I, I just loved speed. I loved competing. I loved competition. But I really enjoyed, you know. And I drove. I was fortunate to drive some good teams, like John Booth's team, you know, and so on. And and the thing that was consistent about it all was, it was it was a people business. And if if you could get the right people and and everybody was working together great things were possible and you know i i left school when i was 18 i made a deal with my parents that i'd take a year out having done what we call in the uk a levels that i could still go back to university because um, they were very unhappy about me going to pursue a, a career in in motorsport um i still haven't gone back to university i i have no honorary degree from I've, I've been given an honorary degree oh, you've done it you've done which, that you which, that box. which was a very <laughs> funny moment because my two brothers did go through the whole university you know system and slaved you know well they, i'm sure they had a bit of fun along the way as well but they you know they they put in the put in the hours to come out with the grades and, and whatever else and then i get given an honorary degree it totally pissed them off they were so pissed off that that you know i'd never been to university in my life um and suddenly get made a an honorary doctorate of cranfield university which was you know incredibly generous of them well, look, what, I suppose the racing driving also helped you understand racing drivers. Yeah. So my next question is, understanding racing drivers as you do, why do you think Daniel Ricciardo has elected to go elsewhere for 2019? With your racing driver 
mentality. I think being a driver, you're always slightly different. You say you're part of a team, but reality is you, you're not. You're a contractor for a team. And, you know, a driver's existence is also a very selfish one where the team will talk about the team. The driver will maybe talk about the team, but really he's only interested in his own performance, his own aspirations. And I think, you know, Daniel, it's a great shame that he's chosen to, to, to leave the team. But I think, I guess in his mind, he's felt that, you know, after five years that he feels and he needs a new, a new challenge, a new prospectus. And I think that, you know, obviously he's chosen to join, join the Renault team that he feels are in the ascendancy. Obviously he's been, um, he knows the Renault product very well from, you know, all his time that he spent with us. Uh, and I can't help but feel that he wants to be a leading role perhaps in a smaller environment um uh the competition between he and max is is intense max is growing stronger and stronger and uh i think that Mac, uh, that daniel's just decided that the timing is right for him to check out and try something else now both you and daniel have been telling us for months actually yeah. that the deal is almost done and, and expects some news soon and things like that. so do you feel let down that he's done is it a u-turn is it is it a... well, you know daniel said he decided after a long flight to america that he decided that he wanted a change now you look at the rational reasons for that it's difficult to understand but i think daniel obviously had his reasons what do you think they were i think it comes back to be wanting to be take on, a, you know, in his words, a new challenge. But I also feel that, you know, he sees Max growing and growing uh, in terms of speed and strength. And, and he doesn't want to play a, a support role, I guess, is for want of a better word. It's not that they're in any way treated in any way different. Were you offering him a number two? Or? No, not at all. He had they would have absolute, had equal equal status as they've always had I think that maybe I can't help but feel that that was perhaps a you know a large part of Daniel's decision making to because I could understand if it was to Ferrari or Mercedes um, but it's an enormous risk to um, you know at his stage in his career have you been caught on the hop because I, did you think the deal was done and therefore haven't been speaking to other well, people? yeah I have to admit it's been a bit like trying to convince a girl to go out with you that doesn't you know it's been pretty reticent i've been there um, many times <laughs> and he, i guess you know when you look at it it's, it's felt like that you know daniel's had conversations with dietrich with myself with helmet and we've bent over backwards to make it make it happen but if someone doesn't heart's not really in it then and it's just felt like that and in the end of the day we gave Daniel everything that he wanted and asked for and it still wasn't enough I think in his his mind to say that I want to keep going at Red Bull so it wasn't about money it wasn't about status it wasn't about position or commitment or duration I think he felt that you know I need to I need to take something else on at this stage in my career now it might be an inspired choice it might be one that Do you, you think know, he, he was nervous he, about Honda? That he regrets. 
don't think so. I think, you know, he, he knows the comparative performance of the two engines and reliability. So, you know, we were even prepared to do a one-year agreement. So he was available to Ferrari and Mercedes should they come knocking in 12 months' time. So, because obviously they haven't taken him up. Not at all. Not at all. I was. I, I thought he was winding me up, to be honest. He rang me literally yesterday afternoon to say, I'm going to Renault. So you, this is a wind-up for the summer holidays. Um, but, uh, that is, you know, it was, then became very clear that that was his choice. And you have to respect that. You know, and Renault are a growing team. They've, uh, you know, they're committing, you know, resource there. Um, maybe it's an inspired choice. So what are you going to do about a driver, a second driver in the team? Uh, well, we're fortunate that we've got you know, several drivers under contract that are great talents. So I think we're just going to sit back and just look, evaluate what the situation is. Also see what comes out of, the, you know, it's an incredibly attractive car to be driving. And I don't think we're going to be short of, of requests and offers. Will you consider someone who's not part of the Red Bull family today? I think we'll look at everything, but I think that the, the preferred route will be very much to invest as has been so successful in home talent, um, Vettel, Vettel, Verstappen. Oh, I see. Ricardo, Vettel's going to come and drive the car. No? <laughs> Ricardo, you know, signs, gas. They're all products that have, you know, delivered for us. They're, they're all products of the Red Bull Junior program. Okay. So of the names you've just listed, it's looking Sainz and Gasly, or am I reading too much into that? I don't read too much at the okay. moment. I mean, okay. we'll... You know, both of those guys are very quick drivers. So, um, uh, and I think this just gives us an opportunity to take a breath and they're under contract anyway till the end of the summer or beyond. You know, we'll just look at, look at the options available to us and make sure we make the right decision for the team. I remember when, when Mark Webber left in 2013, it was going to be a, going to be a disaster and we considered Kimi Raikkonen we considered all the drivers but in the end it came as to a clear-cut choice between Jean-Eric Verne and Daniel Ricciardo and Daniel, Daniel got the nod and the concern we had about him was his racecraft because we hadn't seen him race anybody you know he could qualify the car all right and then ironically it turned out from the moment he got in the car that he never stopped overtaking people so so it just goes to show until you put give somebody the chance in your own environment sometimes quite difficult to gauge can i just throw one name at you uh just to discuss him in that you know fernando alonso i yeah. think he was linked to the team in fact a couple of times in the past wasn't yeah. he has he got any chance because he is a, i mean i'm sure he's a free agent if you want him and there's a huge number of people out there who would love to see him in a front-running car i um I, i've got huge respect for fernando I mean, he's a great driver he's a fantastic driver but i think be very difficult to see you know he's tended to cause a bit of chaos wherever he's gone i'm not sure that it would be the healthiest thing for the team um you know for fernando to join the team so i think our preference you know would be to continue to invest in youth than take a driver who's obviously close to the end of his career yeah, and I suppose he wasn't that complimentary about Honda last time around, was he? Let's move on. Let's talk about other drivers. Who is the best driver that's ever raced for you? 
right to say at, at the current moment, Sebastian Vettel. You know, I think he grew with the team, and he, you know, he he produced some fantastic performances. And when he got into a position at the front of a race, you know, his ability to control a Grand Prix, manage a race, was phenomenal. So, uh, you know, he just got better and better and better with each year that he was with the team. Do you think he's making more mistakes now he's at Ferrari than he did when he was at Red Bull? I think probably the pressure's a bit different at Ferrari. I think it's, um, I think at Red Bull it was arguably a more relaxed atmosphere. He hasn't got the nation's hopes resting on his shoulders. Um, and Ferrari obviously is a different beast to operate, you know, within um, um, fear-based, um, uh, you know, in a very different environment from the outside looking in. So, and you can see that you know, Sebastian has he carries that pressure and he's uh, very much a rock within that team. Why do you think, with the benefit of hindsight, the Weber Vettel years were so fractious? Why, why, I don't know, it just seemed there was an undercurrent of ill feeling. Is that, yeah, it is was that... frustrating. I think it was, it was potentially where Ricardo um, Verstappen could have ended up over the next next couple of years because I think it was very difficult for Mark to accept at the time and I think if he looked back at it now um, with perspective and honesty Sebastian was just quicker and so therefore Mark would use whatever tool he could to try and get under his skin because Mark was a great competitor, he's a ruthless competitor, he'd read every mind management game in the book in the business one of his heroes was Roy Keane, you know. So, you know, Mark would use whatever he could, whatever tool he could to try and ruffle, you know, Sebastian. And if that meant using the team to do that, he, he would do that. And I think that, you know, as a team, we were just trying to play a, a straight bat. But, you know, every now and again, you get a missile coming in and, and the situation got tougher and tougher, of course. You know, it probably culminated end of 2012 when Sebastian was fighting Alonso for the championship and, and and Mark squeezed him up against the pit wall on the start of the race in Brazil in the championship decider that ultimately resulted in him getting turned around by Bruno Senna and blah, blah, blah. And that was really... Sebastian was hugely angry about that. Were you? Um, yes, um, because we discussed it before the race that Mark wasn't in the championship, um, you know, it was everything, do everything possible to support your teammate. And, you know, on that day he chose, not. Yeah, he had instinct kicked in. It, it probably was totally foreign to him to think, I don't want to support this guy. Um, but then there was a hangover of that that led into Malaysia. Multi-21. Literally two races later, split by about five months or four months. But... Um, you know, so then you've got a situation where you've got Mark in the car ahead, Sebastian on new car tires and the car behind. The tires were pretty fragile. We're telling them right hold position, and Sebastian mm. thought, "Fuck you." Um, was it for, for this is payback? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Did Seb ever say that? Did he articulate yes, that? Yes, he tomorrow? told him that after the race or before. Or, you know, when they sat down in China. And uh, and so that was a that was a you know probably as about as tense as it could as it could. Could get. you have done anything differently at the time? Or 
Would you we do anything different now? We could have replaced Mark earlier. <laughs> I don't know what you could do, to be honest with you. With that, I mean, Mark was a great, and he drove some fantastic races on his day. You know, there were races in Monaco in 2010, Barcelona that year, Nurburgring 2009, Spring to Mind, Silverstone. Um, I think it was 2011. He drove some phenomenal Grand Prix that he was untouchable. I think for Mark, what he struggled with was maintaining that level and his best chance in 2010 leading the world championship in career in the wet he's pulling away at a second a lap from all the cars behind him he was just so obsessed by sebastian was pulling away ahead of him you know he dropped the car and and that was a fantastic chance for him to win that that world championship but you know looking back on it it was there were bits of it that were uncomfortable but overall it was a part of the team's you know growing experience and it was fun and we you know we we get on well now and and i think when he looks back now when you do one of these podcasts with him maybe he's got a slightly different perspective to what he had at the at, at the time i think mark has completely mellowed he doesn't even have a race license now he's completely turned the page i mean is there if i take it back to you is there ever a day that you wake up and wish you were still a racing driver uh, no, a racing driver, no. I, I'm stupid enough to drive at Goodwood every now and again in the revival. And whenever I do that, I think, why on earth did I agree to do that? You know, f- phenomenally valuable cars around a track that's still got 1960s safety standards. But it's just a fantastic event. And yeah, the thrill is still driving the cars. We're all fans of the sport. That's why whether you're a journalist or a team principal, you have to love the sport um, and, and have a passion about it. Otherwise, why bother? Why would you do it? I agree. I agree. Now, look, just a bit personal stuff, if we may. Um, Mrs. H, Joey, yeah. what's it like having a celebrity wife? Well, to me, she, you know, she's just my wife, so I forget um, that uh, you know she's a national icon in many respects. So, so, um, and you know, she's tremendously supportive. She's um, she understands some of the pressures and the, particularly the pressures of traveling and being away from home and, and so on. And she's, she's tremendously there, supportive. And, you know, being an artist like she, you know, has been, it's not so different to being a driver, you know, the highs and the lows. And so she, she can sort of relate to those, those, those pressures, those situations. So, but, you know, we lead a pretty normal life and other than when you go out for dinner and people are uh are nadgering mainly her for a for a picture or whatever but it's um uh yeah i'm guessing you're do you make some different circles to the other team principals do you think i doubt it we're pretty anti-social we don't go out much to be honest with you are you, so are for you the us, modern day flabby for, for us um you know there's no better weekend off than being at home with the children and animals you know for me home is a bit of a sanctuary you as soon as you shut the door try and leave formula one behind you and um because you know with with family you try and make sure that you're present you know it's no fun for them if you're just constantly on the phone all the time what kind of a dad are you i think jerry would say irresponsible um she's told us you're a detail um but uh yeah look you know I love the children um, and spending time with them. It's 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 really rewarding because we travel a lot, a lot of time away from home. 
that you know when you do get time. So there's this two week break of you know, having a week in Cornwall, just messing around on a uh, a surfboard or whatever we'll do down there, or you know buckets and spades and and all the rest of it, or swimming lessons or whatever. It's it's just great fun and it's the most rewarding thing more than more than winning a Grand Prix. It's a better feeling than winning a Grand Prix than, than it, by spending time with your family. I guess you're going to be on the phone quite a lot these couple of weeks. Well, I won't because there'll be no reception. There, so, <laughs> okay. so, so hopefully she'll be all right. No, we talked about your honor, honorary degree. Uh, I haven't talked to you about your OBE. Mm-hmm. Just describe the ceremony and what it means to you. I would, again, I was a, very surprised to be awarded a, an OBE in, uh, uh, in the honours list um, after 2013. I'd, I'd been invited to a lunch hosted by the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, which I expected there to be about 200 people at. Um, and there turned out to be 10 of us there. Where, where was this? This was at Buckingham Palace back in 2012. No, it was 2013, because it was just after the multi-21 scenario. I had this bizarre situation of having to deal with the drivers and then to go to lunch with the Queen and Prince Philip and explain to her what a multi-21 was and why our Australian driver was particularly grumpy with our German driver. Did you really so, try so, to explain so, that? So yeah, I had that conversation <laughs> over lunch with the Queen, and she seemed to show great interest uh, in it and likened it to horse racing. And Prince Philip was incredibly interested as well because he's quite a, he, he was inquiring whether we could have a look at one of his carriages that he competes on in Windsor Park or something that he's very keen on his carriage driving. Um, Trying to make it fast. Exactly. I'll get Adrian involved. (laughs) Um, So it was a most bizarre situation of um, people from all different walks of life. There was a mathematician there, there was somebody from the Navy, there was somebody that ran one of the national museums. It was a very diverse group, but small group of people. And it was just like having lunch with your grandparents, just slightly more formal. But it was a, a lovely after, you know, a great occasion. I felt very privileged to be there. And then I, I didn't know whether that was a sussing out moment or not. But shortly after that, I got uh, informed about um, the Honours Award, which was a, a, a phenomenal privilege. And, uh, yeah, something I'm very proud of. And then what about the actual ceremony itself? The ceremony itself all goes in a bit of a blur. So you turn up a bit back in place. Prince Charles was handing out the gongs that day. I've met him about four or five times now, and every time he says exactly the same thing to me. Who on earth pays for all this? <laughs> it's so expensive. It's so expensive. I met him the other day at a Prince's Trust thing, and uh, how, how's Red Bull doing, blah, blah, blah. Who on earth pays for it all? So that was quite fun. But look, they, I'm a big fan of the royal family. They do some fantastic stuff. Special day. So let's just end it with... What does the future hold for you personally in Formula One? Um, I mean, Toto Wolff talks openly about his contract with Mercedes ending it, I think it's 2020. Uh, and then beyond that, he's refusing to commit. When, what, what do you, where do you see yourself in five years? My focus is on getting Red Bull back into the winner's circle. And, and you know, contracts are bits of paper at the end of the day, but it's it's all down to relationships and where your heart is and my heart is very much in the team I enjoy working for Dietrich I enjoy doing the job that I do um, I feel a personal responsibility to the team I'm still driven by a competitiveness that wants to you know 
get back and compete at the front, you know, compete against the Mercedes, compete against the Ferrari. And that's what really has hurt over the last few years that we haven't been able to do that on a on a regular basis. And it's an interesting time in Formula One at the moment where the regulations are going, where the sport is going. But you know, I'm 44 years of age. Um, and you know, I've got a few years left in me yet as a, as a, as a team principal. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There were lots of interesting snippets, be they about Adrian Newey, Juan Pablo Montoya, the Queen, or the Queen of Pop herself, wife Jerry. By the way, thanks for lunch, Jerry. You cook a mean lasagna. That's pretty much it for this episode. Next week, I will, of course, be chatting to another big name from the world of F1. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to ensure you never miss out. And you can rate and review us too. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app. If you feel like dropping me a line, you can get me on Twitter at Tom Clarkson F1. And we also love reading your feedback. Just use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid to get the conversation going. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>